From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. I'm Lisa Dewey, DLA Piper's pro bono partner, and I'm pleased to be joined by Beth Henderson, pro bono counsel at Microsoft. Thanks, Lisa. So last year, Lisa and I had the honor of participating in a panel discussion on the access to justice crisis in America at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. The speakers described growing efforts to address the justice gap and suggested creative ways to promote fairness and justice in our legal system. You'll hear that conversation today. Lisa moderated the event, and Professor Becky Sandifer and Jim Sandman were the featured speakers. Becky is the director of Arizona State University's School of Social and Family Dynamics and a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation. Jim is a distinguished lecturer and senior consultant to the Future of the Profession Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School and President Emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation, the largest funder of civil legal aid in the United States. It was a great opportunity to come together and talk about the access to justice crisis at the beginning of National Pro Bono Week and Microsoft's Give campaign, which happens annually every October. A key way that Microsoft gives is by supporting legal services for those who need it the most. According to the Legal Services Corporation, most low-income Americans do not get access to justice or help with legal issues. The data, in fact, is quite staggering. LSC's 2022 Justice Gap Report found that 92% of the civil legal problems reported by low-income Americans received inadequate or no legal help. Globally, about 5 billion people don't have access to justice. It's clear we're in a state of crisis, and it's time for all of us to learn how we can contribute to developing solutions to address this crisis. In the United States, there's no guaranteed right to counsel if you're facing a civil legal problem. So, for instance, if you're facing eviction, if you need help getting a domestic violence protection order, if you're a veteran who's seeking benefits for which you're eligible, you have to navigate all of those complicated processes on your own unless you're able to connect with a legal aid or pro bono attorney. There's a huge need for people who need support and simply not enough availability for those legal services. It has been and it is such a privilege and honor to work with Beth and everyone on Microsoft's pro bono team, as well as Jim Sandman and Professor Becky Sandifer to share their insights and innovative ideas about access to justice in America. We look forward to our continuing collaboration to bring attention to the access to justice crisis, as well as figuring out ways so that we can address it through our volunteer work together. As you listen to this program, we hope it inspires similar conversations on the importance and the need for equal access to justice. Dealey Piper is honored to work with Microsoft, and our pro bono team has been particularly honored and pleased to be working with all of you on pro bono and with the pro bono team. So I especially want to thank Beth Henderson and Adrian Palma and Paolo Sai and everybody on the team for your collaboration. We could not be more thrilled to have this conversation with Jim and Becky, our distinguished speakers. It's such a privilege to have Jim and Becky to talk with us about access to justice and the access to justice crisis in America. 
I can't think of two people that are better suited to have this conversation with us. And it's a real honor to have them with us. So we could not be happier to have this event together and to have Jim and Becky with us. Their titles and their accomplishments would only begin to tell you about who they are. They are incredible leaders with a vision for our country where everyone has access to justice. And everyone who cares about fairness and justice and equal access to justice for all should be so happy to be hearing from Jim and Becky about these issues. They also happen to be kind and some of the most generous people that I know with their time and their talent. So thank you all so much for being here with us today. Jim, I'm going to start with you. You have had a varied and really extraordinary career. As Beth said, you've been in private practice, government service, and then also as a public interest lawyer. Before you became the distinguished lecturer and senior consultant to the Future of the Profession Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School, as Beth mentioned, you were the president of the Legal Services Corporation. And as she said, the LSC, which is the acronym for the Legal Services Corporation, is the largest funder of civil legal aid in the United States. It gives grants to grantees, legal services organizations throughout the country. You also served as the general counsel of DC Public Schools and as a managing partner of Arnold and Porter, a big law firm that has an incredible pro bono program. But can you tell us when you learned about the access to justice crisis in the United States? And what is it that we're really talking about when we say, access to justice. Thank you so much for having me here. I don't know a corporation that does nearly as much as Microsoft does to support pro bono and improve access to justice. Thank you for what you do. I wish we could clone you. America needs more corporations like Microsoft leading the way. And my compliments also to DLA Piper. I don't know of a law firm that devotes more resources to improving access to justice than DLA Piper. A person has access to justice when they're able to understand their rights under the law, to assert and protect those rights, and to get a fair result. That's what access to justice means to me. I first learned of the crisis in access to justice, the magnitude of the problem, when I came to the Legal Services Corporation in 2011. It's not as if I'd been living under a rock before then. I spent 30 years at Arnold and Porter which, as Lisa mentioned, has a world-class pro bono program of its own. I did pro bono work there from the day I joined the firm until the day I left. I volunteered at the Landlord-Tenant Resource Center in D.C. Superior Court, helping people who had eviction cases in court that day, not to go into court with them, but to help them get their papers together and explain to them what might happen. But I had no idea of the magnitude of the problem, and I am not alone in that. And one of the biggest challenges we face in the United States, if we're gonna tackle this problem, is to educate the public and the legal profession about the realities of what's going on out there. Beth mentioned that you have no right to a lawyer in a civil case, unlike a criminal case. Most Americans don't understand that. Studies show people think you do have a right to a lawyer in a civil case. 
My explanation for that is that I think most people in the United States get their knowledge of the legal system from TV shows. Most TV shows are about the criminal justice system, not the civil. I think many Americans could give you a pretty good approximation of a Miranda warning, including that part about having a right to a lawyer and one being appointed to represent you if you can't afford to pay for one, with no understanding that there is no such right in a civil case. They don't understand the difference between a civil case and a criminal case. And why should they? That's a lawyer's distinction. I've talked to PhD members of Mensa who don't understand that there's no right to a lawyer in a civil case. Lawyers do understand this, but lawyers as a group do not understand the magnitude of the problem. And I'll get into some facts about the magnitude later on. But I first learned about the scope of the problem when I came to the Legal Services Corporation, the largest funder of civil legal aid in the United States. It opened my eyes. Thank you, Jim. Becky, you also have had an extraordinary career as an academic researcher and using empirical-based research to study access to justice and the way it's defined and what justice needs, what all of that means. In addition to being, I want to get this right, the director of the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, you also have been an award-winning professor and sociologist, and you are a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation, where you created and direct the Access to Justice Research Initiative. And in 2018, you were named a MacArthur Genius Fellow for your extraordinary work in this area. But I'm curious, as an academic researcher, why did you decide to study Access to Justice? Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today, and thank you to Microsoft and to DLA Piper for bringing attention to this really critical issue that affects millions of people. This is so important, and it's wonderful that you're in on this. Actually, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a sociologist, and I started out studying lawyers, and I studied the way their careers had changed over the second half of the 20th century. As I was doing that, I started to think about the role that lawyers play in our particular type of society. So if you think about the justice system, you've already paid for it. Right. You've elected legislators to write laws and you build courthouses and you staff them and you've paid for the fax machines and all these different things that the technologies that make those and the staff that make those things run. But we've made it so complicated and so inward looking that if you want to use your own public justice system, you have to go to a private third party. That would be a lawyer and often pay them to use your justice system. Now, imagine if you lived in some community in America where you paid taxes for the public school system and you had a school-aged child and you tried to take your kid to school and they're like, mm, no, school's really too complicated. You need to hire a private educational consultant. If you're really lucky, we have one or two subsidized educational consultants that can help you, but only if you're really, really, really poor. It just seems like such a strange way to set up a public institution. So I became intrigued to understand how that filtering mechanism affected people's ability to use their own law. And as I got into what people would use their own law for, I saw how incredibly critical and life-altering these issues are. So there are two and a half million grandparents who are raising their grandchildren. I love my grandparents, but things like getting them enrolled in school, getting them on insurance, those are all legal issues that people have to handle. Or we've got something like 8 million people living in substandard housing where they don't have, where it's not safe, or it's not up to code. They're going to need oftentimes some kind of assistance in making the case to their landlord or to public authorities that that has to be fixed. We've got all kinds of people who have debt issues around the flow of money in and the flow of money out. 
And they need some assistance. Otherwise, they'll lose their ability to make a living, their place to live, their ability to care for the people who depend on them. So it started out as a curiosity, like, how does this work? Gosh, that's so interesting. And it became, oh, my gosh, this is an enormous issue that at that point, people were not talking about very much. Thank you. Well, we're lucky and so fortunate that you are studying this and helping us to figure out ways to close this gap. Jim, I want to go back to some of the statistics that Beth shared in her opening remarks, which is the 2022 Legal Services Corporation Justice Gap Study that came out and said over 92% of people with a substantial legal need go without any help at all. And Becky, as you just were explaining, these are legal needs that touch basic human needs like housing and safety and income and education and healthcare. We talk about this and we hear the words and it sounds terrible, but can you give us an idea of what does this really look like in our courts, in our local courts? It looks quite striking. In the United States today, in civil cases in state courts, which is where about 95% of the civil litigation in the United States occurs, both parties have lawyers in only 24% of the cases. What that means is that the image we all have in our minds of what goes on in a courtroom, where lawyers for both parties get up and present the facts and argue the law, is a fiction in more than three quarters, 76% of civil cases in state courts. It is ugly. The person who doesn't have a lawyer and has to navigate our justice system confronts a legal system created by lawyers for lawyers on the assumption that everybody's got a lawyer. Everything about the system, from the language of the law to the forms that are used to the rules of civil procedure to the rules of evidence, they were all built around lawyers as the users of the system. That actually used to be the case. These large numbers of unrepresented litigants are a relatively recent phenomenon. The earliest research I can find on it goes back to 1976. It was a study published in the Yale Law Journal that looked at divorce cases in two trial courts in Connecticut, and it found that in those cases, in 2.7% of the cases, at least one party didn't have a lawyer, 2.7%. That figure is now 76% for all civil case types nationally. The number grew over the last quarter of the last century, and our system has not adapted to this dramatic change in who it is who's actually using the courts, not lawyers, people who don't have lawyers. There's a term for it today, lawyerless courts. These figures are highest in some categories of high volume and what I call high stakes cases. High stakes, not because there are billions of dollars at issue, but because there's something more important, like the roof over your head, shelter for your family, In Washington, D.C., where I live, the city that has more lawyers per capita than any city on the face of the earth, and a pro bono culture that I consider second to none, 88% of tenants facing eviction don't have a lawyer, even though more than 90% of lawyers do. And get this, 88% of victims of domestic violence seeking protection orders don't have lawyers. Legal aid programs are woefully underfunded. They don't have nearly enough money to serve the people who are eligible for service at them. So there is an option available out there, but not as a practical matter for many people. Last year, of the people who qualified for legal aid at an LSC-funded legal aid program and came to seek help, 
half were turned away with no help of any kind. Can't help you. And every day, legal aid organizations need to make gut-wrenching decisions about whom to help and what level of service to provide. Even if you get help in the vast majority of the cases, that's not going to mean that a lawyer takes your case in the way that in private practice, you would take a case for a client and go to court with you. In about 75% of the cases, so-called, that legal aid organizations handle, what the client gets is called brief advice and counsel. That may mean a 20-minute phone call to walk you through the process and explain what's going to happen. The funding, by some measures, has actually fallen over the years. Funding for the Legal Services Corporation was created by an act of Congress and gets almost all of its money from an annual congressional appropriation. This year, that appropriation is $495 million, which is less than half of what the appropriation was in inflation-adjusted dollars in 1980 to serve a significantly smaller population. That number, $495 million, is less than what Americans spend every year on Halloween costumes for their pets. This year, Americans are estimated to spend $710 million on Halloween costumes for their pets. So even if you're qualified for legal aid, you're very likely to be turned away. And one final fact, you have to understand, as Becky mentioned, legal aid is only available to the very poor. There are income eligibility cutoffs for legal aid. For the money that's appropriated by Congress to the Legal Services Corporation, grantees using that money, as a general matter, can't serve anybody making an income above 125% of the federal poverty guideline. This year, for an individual, that's an income of $16,988. Now, many legal aid organizations get funding from other sources, from state or local sources, from private contributions, and they're permitted to use that money to serve higher income levels. But typically, that tops out around 200% of the federal poverty guideline. This year, that's an income of $27,180. As you can well imagine, there are people who make above those numbers who can't possibly afford a lawyer. They get turned away at the door without anyone ever talking to them about the first question. You don't qualify. So this problem is affecting not just the poorest of the poor. It's affecting people of moderate incomes as well and small businesses or taking risks and going without because they can't afford the price of entry to the system. Thank you, Jim. Becky, I want to turn to you and talk about justice needs that don't make it to the courts. We know that there are needs and people aren't even making it to the courthouse. And I'd like if you could please share with us some of your research around that and what people are experiencing that may not make it to court. So as Jim said, justice issues affect everybody. They're equal opportunity issues that we're all going to have over the course of our lives. And there are many people who are not eligible for any kind of assistance who cannot get assistance for their justice issues. Our best estimate is that every year Americans experience somewhere between 100 and 150 million new civil justice issues. So these are things around wages and employment, around housing, around family issues, around domestic violence, really, really critical issues in people's lives. And if you look at the distribution of these problems, they look like an iceberg. So if you're familiar with icebergs, maybe 15 or 20 percent of the iceberg you can see and everything else is below the surface. So if you're sitting in a lawyer's office or at a court, you're at the top of that iceberg, just seeing a little bit of the activity that people experience, but not the vast majority of it. 
and money is part of this, right? So money to pay for assistance of different types that people could use to work on their justice problems. But there are also really significant issues around people's understanding of their justice issues. So everyone knows that divorce is a legal problem because you got to go to law to get divorced. But they may not understand that the roof leaking in their apartment is a legal problem. They may not understand that a hospital refusing to take their public insurance is a legal problem. There are all kinds of really critical issues that they may not see the legal connection to. So one of the big challenges for me when I talk to different kinds of audiences is to help those audiences understand that it's not just that what we see on TV is just about criminal law, which is a little bit different, but that if you're in a court or you're in a lawyer's office, what you're seeing is a very rarefied selection of people's actual problems. Thank you. I want to turn to something that Beth mentioned, and we're so excited to be hosting this event, as she said, on the first day of National Pro Bono Week. And we know that Model Rule 6.1 asks lawyers to do pro bono work every year. And pro bono work has gone up overall over the last decade plus. Firms like DLA Piper, in-house departments like Microsoft are doing pro bono work. And there are millions of hours that are spent by private lawyers doing this work every year now. And yet at the same time, the access to justice gap and the crisis that you've heard Jim and Becky describe has gotten worse. At the same time, pro bono has gone up. And Jim, I've heard you say, we're not going to volunteer our way out of this. And one of the potential ideas or answers for how to address this crisis is de-lawyering pro bono and access to justice. Microsoft, I know, has one of the most diverse skill sets in the world. And there are so many other professionals and talents out there that could help address this access to justice gap. Jim, I wonder if you could comment on this concept of de-lawyering, if you would. Yes. We have proof that lawyers are not sufficient to solve the problem. Years and years of proof. We have evidence of that. We have to think more broadly about who can help. I hope that in the near future, we'll see an increase in the licensing of paraprofessionals or professionals who aren't lawyers to be able to provide assistance. But currently, in the vast majority of states, restrictions on the unauthorized practice of law prohibit an individual who doesn't have a law degree from giving legal advice or personalized legal assistance to someone. If you do that and you're not a lawyer, in the vast majority of states, you run the risk of being prosecuted for the crime of the unauthorized practice of law. Fortunately, there are some states that are taking a fresh look at that. Arizona and Utah have recently authorized licensed paraprofessionals. Oregon just did it. Minnesota has a program. Other states are also on the road to implementing programs like that. Washington state has had a program like that since 2012, but it's being sunsetted next year, eliminated. And the reason it's being sunsetted is because it costs too much to administer because too few people were interested in the license that was offered. The position created in 2012 was called Limited License Legal Technician. Think about that. I can't think of a title less likely to inspire confidence. It screams what you can't do. Limited technician. You can't even fit it on a business card. The requirements that were imposed for qualifying for that license included 3,000 hours of supervised practice, 
three different examinations, hundreds of hours of training, the barriers to entry were so high that anybody looking at it would say, takes too long, costs too much. Why would I do that? I think there were no more than 50 people over the course of the last 10 years who have signed up for the program, and it was costing more than a million dollars to administer. So the state Supreme Court decided in 2020, it might have been 2021, to phase out the program as of next year. But I don't look to that experience and say it can't be done. The lesson I draw is you need to do it differently from how it was done. I'm confident that it can be implemented successfully. But put that aside, in places where you still have to deal with restrictions on the unauthorized practice of law, there's a lot that a person who isn't a licensed lawyer can do. You can help with intake to take information from a person who's coming in for assistance. You can help to steer them to self-help resources, online resources that will explain the matter that they have. Translation services, interpretation services can be very helpful for people who speak multiple languages to serve a population that may not be able to get assistance in their own language at the courthouse or elsewhere. And I think there are business skills that people have that can be useful. There are legal aid programs that have benefited from corporations that have come into a business process analysis of the way they do work, where they take the operations of the legal aid organization and break it down step by step to look for efficiencies. When you're functioning with limited resources and you're not able to handle all of the people who need your help, you want to be sure that you're maximizing your efficiency with the resources you do have. There's an expertise in that called business process analysis that exists in the corporate world that can be brought to bear in legal aid organizations. Technology help. Often legal aid organizations need to upgrade their technology. In-kind contributions would be valuable. They may be able to streamline their work through better use of technology that people like those at Microsoft could help them with. So there are lots of opportunities for people to help. One of my missions, though, is to go back to the first thing and to increase the number of states that license professionals who don't have a law degree to increase the number of helpers available to people who are otherwise on their own. Thank you, Jim. And Becky, I want to now come to you with a similar question and hear about your research in this area. The World Justice Project, and I know that they're coming out with their new ranking, I think later this week for 2022, but in 2021, the World Justice Project has a rule of law index where it ranks about 139 countries every year. And this last year, the United States ranked 41 out of 139. We also ranked 126 out of 139 for civil justice. And one of the factors there was around accessibility and affordability of our civil courts. I want to say the number again, 126 out of 139 is where the United States ranked. So, Becky, I'm just sharing that as a prelude to asking you, what can we learn from others when it comes to other talents, other professionals, and how we can narrow this justice gap? I almost always agree with everything Jim says. So I agree with everything Jim said, except I want to push it just a little bit farther. It's pretty clear from empirical research in jurisdictions where people who are not lawyers and may not be licensed are allowed to deliver legal services that if they're specialized and trained, they do great. 
There are even studies that show them doing better than attorneys. So I think licensing people is one way to open up access to justice, but creating, enabling regulatory environments that allow people to provide the kinds of services they can't now is another really important move. One of the things we see when we look at particularly services for disadvantaged populations is the ones that are the most effective follow the four T's. So they're timely, they're targeted, they're trustworthy, and they're transparent. And this is where the skill set of this company can make some really incredible contributions. So timely means it shows up when I'm somewhere where I realize I'm in trouble. So co-location, embedding, wraparound services, there are lots of different ways to do that. Targeted means it's not just a bunch of information about all the things that might be happening to me. It's directed to the thing I'm actually confronting, the situation that I'm actually in. Trustworthy means it comes to me from somebody who I already think probably has my good interests. So that could be a legal aid office, but it could also be a community organization, my faith community, a neighbor, right? There are lots of places that we already go to for help. We could be embedding help there. And then finally, when people are in these situations, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of stress. So transparency about these are the choices and this is how long this is going to take probably. And this is what's going to happen after this happens. That's really critical information to give to people. And right now, because only lawyers can give legal advice, really basic stuff that would help people manage these problems just isn't accessible to them in many places. So when you're thinking about what cool things you might do, the four T's can be handy in thinking about where you could intervene. Lots of us like to think about cool consumer-facing technologies. So what is the app that would help me solve this problem or figure out what my problem is? And there's a lot of opportunity there. But there's a lot of back office issues. So the state of Washington pioneered something called CLEAR, Coordinated Legal Education and Referral. And it has lawyers answering the phone. It wouldn't have to if we changed the rules a little bit. But the other thing it does that's life-changing in this space is they have real-time capacity information about the organizations that they refer to. So what's the point in referring to somebody to someplace where they can't get help anyways? They're going to give up after the first or second time. So if you could just integrate the ecology of help so that Somebody who's sitting at some entry point can say, yeah, you have three choices where you could go to solve this issue, and all of them have capacity, or only this one does. That would be a game changer in getting people connected to help when they need it. There are interesting models, even in the United States, of storefront information offices. Legal Hand in New York City is very similar to something that's a little bit more empowered in the United Kingdom, which is something called Citizens Advice which is in every postcode on the internet, available by phone, and community volunteers who are trained in how to help you solve different kinds of justice problems can answer your questions. So we have a lot to learn when we look around the world at different ways to do this. And I think Microsoft has a lot to contribute to help us do it better here. Thank you, Becky. I'm wondering too, just a follow up on that a tiny bit more, and I love the four T's, but the first one, going to where people are. Are there other examples that you could provide of where professionals have come together to meet people where they are? So the most expansive ones you see in the U.S. context are with health, because most of us will go to healthcare providers at some point. And there are two different ways to do this, both of which are very interesting and probably very impactful. So one is something that's called a medical legal partnership. So I'm a doctor in a community clinic, and I might have lawyers come in in the recognition that oftentimes some of the things that are contributing to health problems are legal problems, like environmental conditions in your apartment, which are exacerbating asthma. So part of the way you can treat asthma is by treating the apartment. And that's something a lawyer can help you do. 
You also see, though, in other contexts like the state of Alaska, huge state, very, very rural, lots of remote communities that don't have roads that access them, that don't have access to technologies. But community health workers are going to almost all of those places. So what if you can empower community health workers to provide assistance with legal issues or to connect people with legal help? And that's what the Legal Services Corporation funded legal aid office in Alaska has done. And Alaska State Supreme Court actually tomorrow is thinking about waiving a court rule that would further empower those helpers to give more expansive help. So I think there are a lot of ways. Health is the biggest example, but there are all kinds of places where we go. So there's a nonprofit in New York State that actually works nationally. But in New York State, it's looking to train parishioners, and in particular church, to help their neighbors and friends with debt issues to respond to debt claims. Those are incredible opportunities to use relationships that people already have to help them connect to the help that they need. Thank you. Just as a follow-up question, and this relates to the work that you're doing at the American Bar Foundation and the research that you've already done to show how so many of these models are effective and help people with justice needs. How would a coordinated access to justice research agenda help us narrow this gap that we're talking about? I think one of the things that would help thinking about how to understand what would be effective and to show that it's effective, it would let us do two really critical things. One is dispel some misconceptions in some parts of the legal profession about whether expanding non-lawyers' capacity to do stuff would threaten them. So if you look at where this resistance comes from now, it's ironically from legal aid lawyers and then from certain kinds of lawyers who work with personal clients. And it's because I think these groups of lawyers misunderstand two things. One is that there is no way they can serve all of the people who need their help. There's simply not enough capacity in the legal profession to do this. So if we opened up capacity, they would not suffer in any way. But also these new kinds of people and technologies that might do some of the practice of law would allow them to expand their capacity to practice in a way that they can't right now. So if you're in the for-profit sector, you can imagine breaking into new client bases that you don't have access to now because they can't afford your traditional lawyer services. And if you're in the nonprofit sector, you can think about helping, I don't know, two or three times the number of people that you can now. So dispelling that would be helpful. I also think, think about how we practice law. Well, how you practice law. The same way your peers did 150 years ago. And you don't do that because people sat down and analyzed it and said, wow, this is really effective at achieving some set of goals. You do it because that's the way we do it. And a research agenda around access to justice could start to provide an evidence base for how could we do this efficiently? How could we do it equitably? How could we do it sustainably? How can we design things that scale? So one of the things that I'm very excited about at this moment is that people who are in the academy, but also outside it, are in conversations about what would that research agenda look like? How could we push that knowledge forward? Jim, I want to ask you about other systemic reforms that would be useful in this space. So much of what we're talking about is happening at a very local level, and oftentimes in places that are rural, where there are very few, if any, lawyers. What are other systemic reforms, or what other acts of courage could we really use right now to move the needle? The places where I see the most cause for optimism are places where the chief justices of state Supreme Courts have taken ownership of this problem and taken on responsibility for doing something about it. I'm talking about people like Chief Justice Nathan Hecht in Texas, Vice Chief Justice Ann Temer in Arizona, Chief Justice Bridget 
Mary McCormick in Michigan. Some of the things I see going on have to do with simplification of court forms and processes, recognizing that the users of the system today are predominantly not lawyers and the forms and the processes need to be redesigned for a different kind of user. And particularly in places where that simplification is accompanied by technology, where it's automated. This is a huge, huge problem. If we're going to tackle it, we need solutions commensurate with the magnitude of the problem, solutions at scale. It is difficult for me to imagine that we can accomplish that without technology. Technology enables scale. So there are increasingly available what are called document assembly applications that work like TurboTax that lead a user through a plain language interview and then take the answers to the questions that are posed to populate a court-approved form. The person completing the interview doesn't see the form being completed in the background. They just answer the questions. But at the end of the process, they've got a form that a court will recognize, a judge will know what they're asking for, what the nature of the problem is. A great example of this is the organization that Becky was referring to, where they're now trying to use parishioners to provide help to their fellow church members and neighbors. It's called Upsol, and they've created an app for bankruptcy to help people file for personal bankruptcy. It typically costs at least $1,500 for a person to file for an individual bankruptcy. Think about that. A person who needs to file for individual bankruptcy does not have $1,500 to hire a lawyer. So this automates the process. The brilliance of Upsolve is that it deals with the matter of federal law. So they can, with minor exceptions, create a solution that works nationwide. That's actually much harder to do with most other legal issues that affect low-income people. Most legal issues that affect low-income people are matters of state law, which means the laws are different in the 50 different states, and the processes can be different in different counties within a state, sometimes even among different courtrooms in the same courthouse. So achieving scale using technology to simplify process in forms is much harder at the state level than it is the federal. But that's got to be a solvable problem. There has to be a solution to that. Not enough to throw up our hands and say too hard, but there is progress being made in that area. There are court-based self-help centers in a number of courthouses around the country where typically they'll have a kiosk that a person can go to and pose questions and get information about the matter that brings them to court today. They work best when they're accompanied with some human help. It's like using the self-scanner at the checkout. There's always someone to help you when you can't get it done. But if you combine the kiosk with a human, that can make a difference. And finally, there have been great developments in the use of video technology since the pandemic, which has improved, I think, access to justice in some significant ways. The traditional requirement of an in-person, in-court appearance is a barrier to justice for a huge number of people. Being able to take time off from work to go to court, get transportation to court, maybe arrange for childcare is impossible for many people. And often if they do get to court, they have to wait three hours to have their case heard. The consequence is that in these high volume, high stakes cases that I referred to, they're often very high default rates where people lose simply because they didn't show up. If they have the option of a video appearance and they can do it from home, all of a sudden court is accessible to them.
And the pandemic showed that video court proceedings increased appearance rates and reduced default rates significantly in these kinds of cases. In Washington, D.C., where I live, the court did something even better. They recognized that some people may not have the right technology at home, or they may be living in a multi-generational household or during the pandemic, their kids are going to school at home. They don't have a quiet place to participate in a court proceeding by video. So the city created places in city-owned buildings, often community centers around the city, where people could go, where they could find the right computer equipment, a strong Wi-Fi connection, and a quiet professional space, bringing court to them in their neighborhood. These things need to continue. This was a bright side of the pandemic. The learning from that, I think, needs to be perpetuated. Unfortunately, there is some inclination in some quarters just to go back to the old way of doing things, frequently because judges prefer to do it that way just for their own personal reasons. But those are examples of some good things that are going on that I think are making a difference. Thank you. I want to ask both of you about that point. What gives you hope And what do you think our real call to action is right now? Becky, let's start with you. I've been doing this for, I don't know, 20-ish years. And it's amazing how much more attention there is to this issue than there was even 10 or 15 years ago. And there's a tremendous momentum here. And that makes me very hopeful because this is energy we can use. So in that sense, I think things are good, even though it feels like the world is on fire a lot of the time. One of the things that's true about this issue is it's nonpartisan. This is a democracy. These are our laws. We should be able to use them. So I guess if I were going to give one call of action to you all, in addition to thinking about how you can use your mad skills to make things more timely, targeted, trustworthy, and transparent, is to think about this as a voting issue. It's something that you would go to government and say, gosh, y'all, having everyone in this country be able to use their laws in our democracy, that's really important. I would love to see that change. I have hope because of the leadership that I see addressing this issue. I have hope because of people like Becky and you, Lisa, and Beth and Adrian and Paolo. You give me hope. I have hope because I see the participation in addressing the problem broadening, as Becky says. Lawyers have proven themselves incapable of solving this problem on their own. We need to exercise a little humility and realize what we could learn from other people who have perspectives and skills and talents that we don't have. And I see an interdisciplinary approach to this problem evolving, a recognition that it's a societal problem. It's about the role of justice and fairness in the United States and not just something for the legal profession. The founders of our country and the framers of our national government recognized this. They emphasized over and over again that their number one value and goal was justice, not liberty, justice. Alexander Hamilton said the first duty of society is justice. Thomas Jefferson said the most sacred of the duties of government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. James Madison wrote in Federalist Number 51, justice is the end of government. It is the end of civil society. It ever has been and ever will be pursued until it be obtained or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. The very first line of the Constitution cites justice as a core purpose of our national government. The first line of the Constitution reads, 
We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. I think that's fascinating. The framers cited establishing justice as their goal before they mentioned providing for the common defense or ensuring domestic tranquility, let alone buying Halloween costumes for your pets. I don't think their ordering was an accident. They recognize that a well-functioning, accessible system of justice is essential to societal stability. It's about the rule of law. You won't long have a nation and a society to defend or worth defending without it. And I think that the involvement of other disciplines, this bringing of other people to the table, is a reimagining of the nature of this problem along the lines of what our founders envisioned. So they gave us the charge. It's time to renew it. I do think this is a solvable problem, and we can't be deterred by the magnitude of the problem. Never, ever, ever let the size of the problem cause us to throw up our hands and say too hard. We just need to bring more people to the table, and I see that happening. And this event today is an indication of that. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.